Welcome to Woven Covenant Church. My name is Wayne Park. I am the lead pastor of this congregation, this uh, small church. We are two years old. We just celebrated our two-year anniversary last Sunday. And um, I just want to put this out there. About 60% of us are either on vacation or having babies. And so um, I really would like to invite you to continue to keep coming back only because I want you to meet the rest of our family. And there's a lot of wonderful people here. I consider myself the luckiest pastor in the world to pastor this congregation. I love this church, and this is where I plan on ending my career and retiring here, right here um, with Woven. So for me, it's a joy to pastor this church. It's a privilege. Our mission is to be a multi-ethnic church, a church with a mission um, in these western parts of Houston, and specifically to be a church that crosses racial and ethnic barriers. It's our heart's desire, especially for myself being Korean-American, I didn't want to just minister to people that looked like me. I wanted to share the gospel Sunday after Sunday. This is my passion, um, to share the gospel with people across cultures and so um, I am really glad to share a word this morning from Isaiah. So for the last few weeks, we've been talking through the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And next week, we're going to conclude this series. We're planning on starting a new series come fall about work, about my job. Is it meaningless? Is it meaningful? We've had some great series in the past. We've had a series on finances. We've had a series on... Um, prayer. We've taught prayer and numerous things. We've got some great stuff coming down the pipeline for this new year. But for today, we want to continue with this series called Servant Songs as we study some passages in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And if you look in your bulletin, you're going to find a sheet with three holes in it, three hole punches. And these are our notes. This is our map for this Sunday. And I'm going to teach today about four progressions of ministry. Four progressions of ministry. Hopefully this will speak to you very deeply. The servant songs are these select passages in the book of Isaiah that speak about a coming servant. Someone is coming. Someone is going to suffer. And someone is going to change our lives. This suffering servant and this, uh, this, this whole thing culminates today with the fourth and last suff, uh, servant song, The Suffering Servant. The Suffering Servant, the fourth and last servant song. So look with me at Isaiah chapter 53. I'm going to invite some audience participation. If you could read together with me Isaiah chapter 53 verse 1 as we begin these four progressions of ministry. So all together now, verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What's being communicated here literally can translate, who can believe our report? Who can trust this? And when you read verse 2, it says, For he, whoever this servant is, grew up before God like a tender shoot like a little sapling, like a root out of parched ground. It's like just this little wee grass that you see poking out of the earth. What's being spoken about here is we saw this person grow up among us and nobody could have believed. Who could have believed what would have happened? 
Now, I'm thinking and racking my brain, trying to think of somebody that I've grown up with in my hometown of Queens, New York. And has anybody from Queens, New York grown up to become famous? Actually, uh, I'm sure there has, but I don't know any of them. I don't think I know anybody that's grown up to be, become, become somebody significant to you. Think for a moment. Is there anybody that you knew as a kid? Man, I played ball with that kid. Man, I remember that. I remember her. She was in my class. She was the quietest one. I remember this person and... You know, I remember we used to pick on him, but then he became famous, or she became somebody significant. You know, Nick, you were sharing with me how you played, was it Little League, with Mike Messina. Actually, you, you were playing high school ball. Yeah. So you were playing some, you know, you were playing baseball with Mike Messina, and who would have known he would have become, um, I still think he got a championship ring. I could be wrong with the Yankees. But anyway, the point is, um, think of somebody who came from your neighborhood and would end up becoming somebody very significant. That's what's being communicated here. This somebody, this hometown hero that grew up in my neighborhood would become somebody significant. Listen to the rest of verse 2. Man, that kid, I remember no stately form or majesty. Nothing that we should look upon him that we think was significant. No form, that word in the Hebrew form, um, tohar, to, uh, tohar, or toar rather, in the Hebrew, it speaks about uh, um, somebody that's beautiful to look at. You know, when you think of King David, if you're familiar with the story of King David, at least it says in 1 Samuel, King David had beautiful eyes. He was handsome. He was dreamy. But the thing is, whoever this hometown hero is, this servant, was not attractive. No majesty. This is somebody that had no, no, no aristocratic sense, no education. It continues and it says this person had no special appearance. And so that combination of form and appearance, form and appearance in the Hebrew, those words are also used um, in Genesis chapter 29, speaking about Rachel, Rachel. The character of Rachel was known to, be, to have form and a beauty of appearance. She was beautiful of form and appearance. The same two words are used there. But what's being said here is that whoever the servant is, he didn't have form, he didn't have appearance, he was nothing to look at, he had no education, no aristocracy. In the end, this is somebody that we were just not attracted to. The first progression, the first process of ministry, the first fill in the blank in your notes is grassroots. All of ministry starts in your backyard. It starts from something familiar. Ministry starts not from some factory somewhere where they make somebody um, out of the perfect pieces and they bring them in and perfect ministry takes place. Ministry happens locally. It's grassroots. So the first step of ministry is this familiarity. Yeah, I knew that person. I knew this was, this was, this was the kid that grew up in Bethlehem. It begins locally. There's a sense of grassroots. And when we see this, we think, hmm, maybe I can do that too. Maybe I also can be like that hometown kid. Maybe one day I can also be famous. Maybe I can do ministry as well. But there's a price to pay. And that's when we really begin to realize how difficult a life of sacrifice is. So look at verse 3. 
He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. These words are difficult words to hear. What we see is somebody that begins ministry and now sees that this is not easy. Ministry is hard. It's not fun. It's not glorious. And it does not give me respect or the esteem that I'm looking for. When I was in seminary and studying to be a pastor, I remember a lot of young people, myself included, and we were in school and we were like, yeah, I'm going to take over the world. I'm going to do the next great thing. I'm going to build this next beautiful church. I'm going to build a cathedral that's the size of a stadium. I'm going to do wonderful things. But then when we started loving people, and this isn't just for me, this is for all of you, when you really become part of a church and you decide, I'm going to covenant with these people, I'm going to love these people, I'm not just going to be friends, but I am going to choose to be part of this community, what we find is that ministry is difficult. And from the beginning of grassroots, the second step in progression of ministry is a sort of breaking happens. Breaking. And it's not just for me, the pastor, but it's for all of us. If you commit to be part of a church body, you have to get past that beginning stage of good feelings. You have to get past that beginning stage of the friendships and begin to go deep. And we find that, man, my junk is starting to come out. We find that I, some of my, they, you know, people are starting to get to know who I really am. Strengths and also weaknesses. And those of you, there are some of you in this room, you know, you shared last Sunday about how you were with me since the very beginning. And that really means a lot to me. I know Bennett, also your family, um, you've been with, with me and my family since the very first day that we set foot here in Houston over five years ago. And you've known my strengths, but also my weaknesses. And in time, as we grow in community together, it's as we get through some of those breaking experiences, only then are we really able to do wonderful and powerful acts and wonderful things, wonderful ministry. It's through the process of breaking. And so, first step of ministry was grassroots. It happens right here. It happens locally, in our backyard. Heck, man, I remember that kid. He went on to become the suffering servant. But instead of glory, the first experience that he had, the second experience was breaking. Was breaking. It was breaking. You know, and I, I know even for myself, um, you know, this verse here, verse 3, it talks about how like one from whom men hide their face. I was at Home Depot not too long ago, and somebody who was, was uh, previously part of my pastorate um, literally just walked right by me and, and completely ignored me. And I remember being so hurt by that. I was like, man, our kids play together. Like, what's with that? Um, and another time, you know... Um, Actually, on two separate occasions, somebody that I really enjoyed um, that was part of my previous pastorate as well, but I guess maybe was really upset about something that happened and on two separate occasions saw me and walked right past and completely just not, did not acknowledge. And Breaking is a part of ministry. 
I don't think any of you have to go through that. I hope you don't. But the reality is we're all in this together. All of us. In this process of ministry, we grow, we mature, and we grow up. We continue with verse 4. And so we see what happens with the breaking of this servant. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. But we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Smitten of God. What that phrase is talking, what that says there is this is, when we saw him suffering, we said this is his own fault. He must be cursed. To say smitten of God means he must have done something to deserve this. And yet, it says, he suffered not because he deserved it. Not because he deserved it or he had done something wrong. He suffered why? He suffered for us. And very specifically, listen to these powerful words. Our grief, our grief, he took it on himself. Our transgressions, our sins. Now, how many of you know the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, the Paternoster. And if you're familiar with that, you know that you can say it different ways. When you get to the part where you say, forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against, or you say, forgive our debts, as we, or you say, forgive us our trespasses, our transgresses. What's being communicated there is a sense where in a relationship with another human being, you crossed a line. You went too far. You transgressed. You trespassed against somebody or against God. And what's being said here is all of those times where we went too far, where we crossed the line, where we said too much, where we drank a little bit too much, where we allowed ourselves to just get a little bit too upset, where we flew off the handle, all of those incidents, he took it upon himself. What's wrong with this guy? Does he have a martyr complex or something? He takes our pain, our iniquities, he was crushed. And then it says the chastening, which is the punishment, so that we could have well-being, so that we could be better. The chastening for our well-being, all of this fell upon him. All of our toxicity, all of our neurosis, all of our craziness, all of our crazy-making, all of the stuff that we do that keeps up our loved ones late at night shaking their heads or makes our, our friends kind of walk away. He took it upon himself. Have you ever seen the movie The Green Mile with Tom Hanks? I think it's a wonderful illustration of what's happening right here where you have this um, large man named John Coffey, a large black man, and he goes around quietly. People are intimidated by him. They think that he's done something wrong. It must be his fault that he's in jail. But he goes from person to person, quietly touching them and quite literally taking their pain. He would take their sickness, their cancer, their death. You know, there's a little mouse in that movie called Mr. Jingles. And he touches the mouse and the mouse comes back to life. But what happens to the poor man when he takes all of our sickness? He doubles over in pain. He gets sick and then he spits out flies. In the same way, the suffering servant in the culmination of all of our 
last four weeks of talking about this servant, finally he takes all of our junk, takes it inside himself, internalizes it, and it ends there. This is not normal. Normal people are not supposed to do this. Only God could take upon all of the world's suffering. You and I are not supposed to. There's just so much that we can take. Friends, my hope is that we are not just a church. And, you know, we have a lot of things. You know, we have um, small groups and we have summer camp, women's conferences, a lot of wonderful things. But I hope we're not just a church that does stuff and that keeps ourselves busy and busy and busy doing stuff. And through some of the stuff like our premarital classes for the numerous couples, we've got four or five young couples that are getting ready to get married and as we, cu- and we get deep and we talk about some of the inner wounds, as we talk about our personalities and our flaws, and we talk about how we can be more compatible, how we can be more healthy, woven has to be a church that doesn't just do stuff, but that is being healed. Do you hear that? Healed. Verse 5 ends with those words. By his scourging, we are healed. We are healed. You know, the closest human emotion that I can think of here, and this is the third process of ministry, is identification or empathy. Because here's the thing. Whenever you have an issue, somebody says, here's a tissue. (laughs) Get, Get over it. What's your problem? Does that make you feel better? Obviously not. Even just this past week, I, had, um, I, was in, um, I was upset about something for my kids, my son's martial arts class, and I complained about it. I had to make a complaint. And I was very, very happy that, that I was listened to and understood. And they didn't say, well, that's your problem. You can leave if you want. They didn't say that. In this sense, when we come with our issues to the Savior, when we come with our junk, He doesn't say, well, get your act together. What's wrong with you? He doesn't try to fix us. Women, wives out there in particular, how many of you have husbands that are fixers, that try to fix? This is one spouse. This is one Lord, one master who doesn't try to fix. He identifies and empathizes. And in understanding firsthand, because he's taken it upon himself, we are healed. Let me tell you a story. I read this really great story about somebody who empathized and in the process was able to really touch somebody else's life. And the story is read by Jeffrey Zaslow, who is a Wall Street Journal columnist. And he tells this story about his dad. And I'm going to read it in first person. He says, years ago, my dad coached a baseball team of eight-year-olds. Now imagine how frustrating that is. My son is eight year old, eight year old, eight years old, and so he coached this team of eight years old, eight year olds, and he had some good players, but a lot of players who just couldn't get the hang of the game. They couldn't figure out the baseball game. And dad's team didn't win a single game. All season long they lost every single game. But in the last inning of the last game, 
that, isn't that baseball, right? It's always the last inning. It's always the last game. And it's always the last strike. I'm embellishing it a little bit. In the last inning of the last game, his team was down by one run. Down by one run, and there was a boy who came up to bat. And <laughs> poor kid, he was so uncoordinated. He never hit the ball, and he never caught the ball. Not once did he ever contact and hit the ball, and not once did he ever catch the ball. So everybody's like holding their breath. It's the last strike of the last inning of the last game of the entire season. Everything's on his shoulder, and he comes up to, well, he's already up at bat, and here comes a third pitch, and lo and behold, he contacts the ball, and he gets a base hit. He runs to first, and everybody's like, yes, we have hope, because the next kid that comes up is the slugger, the home run hitter. This kid is going to drive the ball home. Uh, RBI, two kids are going to come home. We're going to win the game. So there's hope. And so here comes the pitch. The slugger, the cleanup hitter, he's in position. He connects. He hits the ball. It's a good shot. And it <laughs> takes a, it doesn't bounce. It, it's, it's a pop fly. And just between first and second base is where it's headed. Just between first and second base. And the kid on first base who hit the ball previously, he looks and he runs. And apparently not only did he make his first hit of the game, he, make his, he makes his first catch of the game as well. And the umpire calls the game and he says, game over, final out, dad's team lost. And at that moment, his dad was thinking, oh my gosh. And all of the anger and all of the transgressions of the world fall upon him. He wants to kick the Gatorade cooler and yell at all of the eight-year-old kids. But he holds his breath in, takes a deep breath, takes it in, identifies, and he looks at the team and he says one word, cheer. Cheer now. Cheer loud. And the whole team breaks out, yay! And the confused kid with a ball in his hand looks out and he goes, yay! And he runs back to the dugout. All that kid knew was he hit the ball and he caught it both for the first time. And to this day, he has no idea what happened. We didn't want to ruin the game for him, is what Jeffrey Zaslow says. After the game, the parents of the, of the boy came up and they thanked my father. They thanked him and they said, we really appreciate what you did. And to this day, not only did we not tell that kid, but I am proud of what my father did that afternoon. This to me is a wonderful story of somebody that in his identifying, in his understanding, instead of lashing back, Instead of lashing out, because isn't that life? Your boss is upset because of something that uh, her husband said to her. So she takes it out on you and says, you're late with your assignment, you're, or you're late with this report, what's wrong with you? You know, what do I pay you for? And you go home in a bad mood and you honk your horn at everybody on the street and you're driving and the next thing you know, your, bad, your boss's bad day becomes Houston's bad day. And we pass this stuff around. But what Jesus does is he said, let it end, let it come, I'll take it, land on my shoulders, end here. He identifies, he empathizes, and as a result, we are healed. 
So ministry begins, grassroots, something familiar. And then secondly, it becomes a process of breaking. That's exactly what happens with the servant. Third is the process of identifying through his sufferings. He suffered so much that every single one of us in this room, guaranteed, can say, well, at least my life isn't as bad as his. We can all say, I think he understands me. But the fourth and the last step of ministry, because it doesn't end at three, the last one is atone, atonement. You see, let me explain what this means. Look at verse six. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us, we went our own ways. Like sheep that kind of just go this way, that way. We did our own thing. I know, even in my own life. Lots of times, I just did my own thing, and it wasn't always the best choice. And in doing all of our own thing and mistakes and all the people that we hurt, it says the Lord caused the iniquity or our mistakes, our sins, all of us, He caused it to fall on the servant, to fall on the Savior, to fall on Jesus. Why? Why in the world does he cause, cause all of the suffering to fall on the servant? This is why. Something that isn't articulated enough in biblical teaching, in my opinion, is that sin does not vaporize. Sin, the mistakes of our lives, they don't just disappear. It's not like the mafia where we disappear it and we never see it again. Sin, throughout the Bible, gets redirected. The way sin gets removed is not just by disappearing, it gets redirected from us onto the lamb, from us onto the sacrifice or onto the sacrificial lamb or onto the scapegoat. Sin gets redirected all throughout the Bible. And so the reason that the sin has to fall onto the servant is because it has to get directed somewhere. It's not just going to disappear. You see, those of us that are elitist and we have these enlightened modern minds, we say, I don't like that. That's so primitive. Why can't we just, why do we need sacrifices? Why do we need, why do we need all this blaming stuff? We're modern people. Actually think about it because the same people, when we say that, we come home and we kick the dog. Or we take out a bad day at work on all of the people on the highway. Or we'll take it out on our divorced spouse or kids no matter how progressive we are, we all do it. We all redirect our sins like a bad family secret. The point is, sin wants to go somewhere. If I have something that I'm hiding, it'll act out in one way or another. And it'll act out in ways that harm my children, that harm my loved ones, that harm my church. Or, if I suppress it really, really deep down, reflexively, who will it hurt? Who will the sin hurt? Me. If I'm not acting out, I'll act out and hurt myself. That's the way sin works. That's the way sin works. It hurts the people around us and it hurts ourselves. Friends, this is not about a moral, you shall, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. This is about, friends, it, it hurts us and it hurts other people. And what the suffering servant does in atoning is he came forward and he said, stop kicking around that sin. Stop taking it out on other people. Stop redirecting it and stop doing it to yourself. 
Let it end. Let it terminate. Let it finalize with me. Because sin ultimately wants to end somewhere. And it bounces around looking for a home. And Jesus says, let it make its home in me. I'll take it. I'll swallow it. I'll absorb it. And I'm not going to kick it back. Don't redirect. Let it end with me. So friends, in conclusion, think of the bad family secrets that you have. The things that you shoulder. The things that you won't hurt somebody else, but you've hurt yourself plenty. And think, who's going to take that from you? Where is that going to end? Because it sure doesn't do good with me. It doesn't do good with other people. Hear these last words of this fourth servant song. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, but he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter, like a sheep silent before its shearers, he kept his mouth shut. Now think about this. Who did that? Well, when we read the New Testament, there's a story about a man named Jesus that when he suffered on behalf of the people, he stayed silent before Pilate. He didn't open his mouth. And when they asked him, are you the king of the Jews? His response was, it is as you say. He kept his mouth shut. In verse 8, by oppression and judgment, this servant, whoever he is, was taken away. And as for his generation who considered he was cut off of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Verse 9, his grave, this servant, was assigned with wicked men. I think this Jesus was crucified in between two thieves. So he was killed among wicked men. But he was with a rich man in his death. And I thought about this. Who was the rich man? It was Joseph of Arimathea in Matthew 27. Thank you, Bobby. Matthew 27. There's a story about a rich man that at the end, he said, I want to take Jesus' body and the tomb that is assigned my tomb. Now, being in ministry, I've, 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 I've been in, in, in various end-of-life situations. Buying a grave is, a very, is very expensive. This Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man, and he said, my tomb, bury Jesus in it. So he gave his tomb. So there you have it. There you have it. Whoever this servant is, he will be he will, he, will, he, will, he will die with wicked men, but with a rich man, he will be in, with a rich man in his death. What's, what we have here, I think, is a three for three fulfillment of the prophecy. You know, there's a, there's a story in the book of Acts about, um, I'll make this quick, where Philip the evangelist comes across an Ethiopian man who's reading the book of Isaiah. And as he reads the book of Isaiah, Philip says, do you know what you're reading? Do you know what you're reading? And the Ethiopian says, how can I unless somebody explains it to me? I don't know what I'm reading. Who is this suffering servant? Who are they talking about? Who is Isaiah talking about? And Philip says, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you about happenings recently in Jerusalem and somebody that filled, fulfilled all of these prophecies. Let me tell you about who would live up to the suffering servant, who the suffering servant is. Friends, like Philip the Evangelist, I want to tell you who Isaiah is talking about today. 
the suffering servant, the one who fulfilled this. His name is Jesus. He was the one, in verse 10, that was crushed, put to grief. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one will justify many and will bear their iniquities. And so, friends, we end with this. The suffering servant, his name is Jesus. Jesus is the one that fulfilled all of these words in Isaiah better than anybody else in history. There is no one else, no one else in history that lived up to all of these descriptors of the suffering servant. He was the one who suffered. He was the one that did this for us. He is the one that in the end died among wicked men but was buried in the grave of a rich man. He was the one. Last story. On a dreary winter day in 1943, 903 soldiers and four chaplains boarded the SS Dorchester. This was World War II. And they were headed across the icy North Atlantic where German U-boats lurked. At 12 a.m. the morning of February 3rd, all the men on the ship woke up to a jolt. The sirens going off and water coming in from everywhere. A torpedo, a German torpedo, had ripped into the ship, and the ship was sinking. Eager to help, the four young chaplains rushed to the life jacket locker, and they began distributing life jackets among the soldiers. All the soldiers ran up and one by one took the life jackets until the very end they ran into a problem. Not enough life jackets. And at that moment, chaplains Fox, Good, Poling, and Washington, all four of them looked at each other and they knew exactly what they had to do because they had learned from the suffering servant in Isaiah so many, so many centuries and millennia back. They took off their own life jackets and they gave it to those last few. And according to the story, to the news reports. As the ship went down, witnesses saw the four chaplains linking arms, lifting up their voices in prayer and in song as they went down with the ship, having given their lives so that others can live. Would you close your eyes with me? Friends, do you need a life jacket today? Do you need a life jacket but you've run out do you ha have your mistakes and your transgressions poked too many holes into it so that you won't float? That when the moment comes, you know that your life jacket's not going to hold you up. Friends, do you need a life jacket? I want to invite you to just reflect as the music plays in the background. I want to invite you to pause just for a few seconds to think what state is my life jacket in? Do I need someone to give me theirs? And if it's your habit, pray. Spend this moment. Talk to God.
if you have not the words, I want to invite you to repeat after me. I'll say a prayer, and maybe you can use this as your own. Dear God, I am sinking. I can't swim. I can't float. I can't do this. I need a life jacket. Would you give me yours? I'm asking. And in return, I'll give you my life. Jesus, I recognize that you are the Savior. And today, I'd like to give you my heart, give you my life, and I'd like to make a decision to follow you. For the first time, or even if it's, even if it's again, I'd like to follow you today. So help me now. Give me new life. I pray that Woven would show me the way and bless me. And so I pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.